I have just recently uh, completed a biography of Patrick Henry by Thomas Kidd, uh, a fascinating character in Revolutionary War history. He is really the spark plug. He was the first among patriots, as Kidd says, to sound the alarm to fight, uh, that there was no other option. Uh, he was an interesting fellow because he was an anti-federalist, which meant at the end of the day he did not like the Constitution. He did not agree with a strong central government. He wanted the power to be in the states. And his fear of a strong central government was that we would have a tyrannical leader, that they would begin to tax the people, that we would incur massive debts, and we would be involved in foreign wars. If Patrick Henry was here today, eh? It is interesting at the end of the biography of Henry that Kidd spends a chapter addressing what if he was here today? What camp would he be in? What party would he adhere to? It's interesting that every party seems to claim Patrick Henry as their own, taking bits and pieces from his life and adopting him. But Kidd makes the point that no persuasion would be comfortable today with Patrick Henry. He would slam the Tea Party for this and that. He would bash the Republicans for this or that. He would tell the Democrats, you're wrong in this area and that area, and he wouldn't satisfy anyone out there on the scheme. We do that with great men, don't we? We take them and make them say and do what we want them to do. We fashion them in the way that fits us rather than the way they were. This is never more true than the person of Jesus Christ. He was back then and is today made to be in our camp, to say what we want him to say, to do what we want him to do, rather than who he really, really is. We come upon a scene where he had just fed 5,000, filled their bellies. They were so excited that they were going to make him a king. We'll see that in just a moment. But it wasn't the kind of king that Jesus was going to be. But they wanted someone to do something for them. It's the same today with Jesus Christ. To those who preach a prosperity gospel, he is the, he is the great banker of heaven who fills their pockets with money. To those who ascribe to healing, he is the great healer. And although he does heal, he doesn't heal at our women wish. But he is projected as he who does. To the liberal, to the socialist, he is the great socialist who leveled the playing field between all people and would have a chicken in every pot. He is used for everyone's purpose, but he is not seen for who he is. Go with me, if you will, to John chapter 66, verse 15, and we'll look at 15 through 21 of an incredible story where we find Jesus, in the end, walking on water. Chapter 6, verse 15, is comical if you have a sense of humor. Perceiving then, after the feeding of the 5,000, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force. Well, stop and think about it. Who are we addressing here but God in the flesh? 
God is to be taken by force? Really? Religionists still do that today. They attempt to take him by force, making him say what they want him to say, do what they want him to do, but it's comical in the, in the satirical form that they would take him by force and then they want to do what with him? To make him a king. That's also comical because he was born a king. No man needed to make the Son of God king. Do you understand how bad sin is in the heart of man? That they would take the precious Lamb of God to make him something of their own fashion, to do with him what they want him to do. I'm so glad we don't do that in our present age. Wow. Notice it says Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself, all alone. It is always interesting when you read the gospel stories to compare them to the other gospel writers in writing the same story. It is fascinating what each author chooses to add and subtract from the story. Matthew tells us that when he realized they were going to make him a king, that he had to constrain the disciples, told, telling them to get down to the shore in the boat. He had to force these men to leave this crowd that they were buying into this political or this popular fervor of the people. He had to constrain them. And then it says, Matthew says, he dismissed the crowd. And then he went alone to pray. Here we're not told. By the way, John never tells us that Jesus prayed. We had the long chapter in chapter 17 about the intercessory prayer, but that was from a position of a priest, a high, the great high priest of God, which is Christ. Never are we told that he prays in John. In the others, we are. Notice the decisive leadership of Jesus Christ when he moves. You have a crowd that's pressing on him to make him a king. You have disciples buying into that popularity garbage. And Jesus steps forward, dismisses the crowd, constrains the disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side, and he takes off for the mountains. That's leadership, man. That's strong leadership. That's letting no one push him around or lead him. He leads and he led. But here we're just told that the disciples went down and got into a boat and he went up into the mountain alone. Doesn't tell us that he prayed. Look at verse 16. That evening, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat. They started across the sea to Capernaum. This is about a six or seven mile trek across sea at this point. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Mark tells us that he was watching them from the mountain. John doesn't. Why doesn't John tell us that he was watching them? Because John's purpose in writing is to portray Jesus as God. God is always watching us. It doesn't need to be said. And he hadn't come yet. 
notice what happens in verse 18. The seed became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. Now, they were on the side of the Golan Heights as we know it today. There are crevices and valleys in that mountain coming down. If you've ever been between two large buildings when the wind is blowing, there is a howling that happens. It is almost like a tunnel that whips the wind stronger and stronger the further down that tunnel it goes. These winds on the Sea of Galilee, it could be slate perfectly smooth. And all of a sudden, in a matter of moments, that wind howls down those with an eerie sound, howls down those tunnels, hits that Sea of Galilee, and before you know it, it's whipped into a frenzy. Now, for those of you who have never been out on the sea, there is nothing more, how shall I say, terrifying than the waves crashing. It, it, you're helpless. Someone has said, there are no atheists in a storm. They all cry out. I spent three years on a tin can. The Navy gave us to sail on, and Karen said, oh, such a big boat. You, I bet you never rocked and rolled. Oh, yeah, we did. Because as big as that frigate was, when you get out on those big oceans, it's like a cork in the water. But the closest, best thing you can get on is an aircraft carrier. I, I remember in big storms, we would be bobbing like corks, and those guys were over on the aircraft carrier just, just like that going, playing basketball. We're throwing up and they're playing basketball. I'm going to tell you, there's nothing more terrifying than that. There's nothing that leaves you more helpless and hopeless than the waves that crash against you. It was nighttime. There was a storm. Look how far they had gone in verse 19. When they had rowed three or four miles. Let's stop there. Let's talk about storms and darkness. They come into all of our lives, don't they? When you least expect it, it shows up. How fast we are whipped into a frenzy by the things that happen to us. You may feel strong today that all is well, and by the morning you may be crying out in great pain. And the darkness comes. And the darkness doesn't go away, it seems. And the waves don't stop crashing. And it seems like one thing after another. And it intensifies. Job said it like this. When I looked, I always smile when I read this verse because I think of the prophets today, the prophets of happiness, the positive thinkers. Oh, just think good thoughts. Think happy thoughts. Break open the sun and let the sun shine through the window and all will be well. Just go out there expecting good things and good things will happen. I'm glad Job was more honest than that. He said, look, I look for good and evil came. That's real, man. That's life. Now, when the Bible talks about real, it doesn't always talk about sin. Evil there, evil is not necessarily sin in that verse. It's bad things that happen. I looked for good, and bad came unto me. And when I waited for the light, boy, there came the darkness. 
Bible is much more realistic than what we hear today, isn't it? I love what Tozer said one time. The, the heart is more honest to us than the prophets of happiness. Our hearts tell us that. Listen to the psalmist as he wrote this. They that go down to the sea in ships, they do great business in the waters. These see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commanded, he raised up the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again into the deeps. Billows lift you up and crash you down. Their soul is melted because of trouble. I love verse 27. They reel to and fro. They stagger like a drunken man. And they are at their wit's end. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble. He brings them out of their distress. But you know he doesn't do it when we think he's going to. That's the problem. That's the rub. We pray for an end of trials, an end of the heartache, and you wake up the next morning and the pain has not ceased. In fact, it has increased. Uh, look at verse 20. Notice Jesus, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. I, I must have missed it in there. Well, it's not in there. Uh, the, the, other, the other gospel writers say it was the fourth watch of the night, which means it was between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. And Jesus watched him in the dark. And he, listen to me, he watched them row all night long. He watched them struggle all night long. Well, why didn't he come at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock? Man, show up by midnight at least. Give some relief to the pain. And the pain continues. Listen carefully to me. He who spared not his own son, but offered him up for us all. He who did not spare his own son, the pain of crucifixion, will not spare us the pains of this life in the rigors of his discipleship program. There it is. The unpopular theology, but the real stuff you can... Look, I want my doctor to tell me the truth. I want my dentist to tell me the truth. I want my preacher to tell me the truth. Because if you know the truth, you can forge ahead. The pain doesn't always go away. In fact, usually it does not. The darkness doesn't lift when you say a special prayer. Get it all right. Get your heart right with the Lord. It'll all come. No. It continues through the night. Listen to what Isaiah says. I love this verse. He says, and therefore, listen to that, will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore, notice, 
Will he be exalted, not us? The Lord waits. He sits on the mountain. He watches the disciples' struggles in the darkness and the storms. Therefore, the Lord waits, and therefore he will be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. He'll come. He'll come. He'll come when he's ready. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Now, we think of judgment like God of judgment. It's not the idea in the verse. God is a God who decides how to deal with us in the best possible way. He judges the circumstances. He sees you. He knows what he's doing with you. And we need to simply trust the process because we trust him who is a God of judgment, who knows things about us that we do not know. The verse says, blessed are all they that wait for him. Let's read the rest of the story and draw some conclusions. Look at verse 8 and 19. They rode three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the, on the sea, and, and he was coming near the boat, and, and they were scared. They were frightened. Matthew tells us that they thought they saw a ghost, a vision of Jesus. And he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Interesting, John doesn't include Peter walking on the water, which he did at this point. This is not about disciples. This is about God. So Peter's not there. Well, he, he's there, but he's not told. The story isn't told. Notice verse 20. He said, simply, it's me. Don't be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And I love this next. Don't miss this. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now stop and think. Stop and think. Don't jump to a conclusion. They'd rode three or four miles. It was seven miles across. But John tells us from his perspective that as soon as Jesus got into the boat, they was there. Now, I don't think that was like, like turning up the jets and, choo you're there. I think it still went three miles. I don't think John noticed the time. Have you ever been with people that you didn't care for in an awkward situation? Fifteen minutes felt like fifteen hours. You ever been with people that you really enjoy and you had a lot of fun talking to? And fifteen hours feels like fifteen minutes. All of a sudden the eyes were off the darkness. The darkness was still there. But Jesus was in the boat, and that's all John was thinking about. And before you know it, they're just walking up, doing a, doing a little dance on the shore. Isn't that amazing? Three things. Number one, his best lessons are in the storm. His best lessons, nobody likes them. Nobody wants them. Heartache comes, tragedy comes, things that make you feel like you can't even breathe. They hurt so much. But he teaches the best things in those storms. Isn't he the interrupter of life? Things go along and everybody's patting you on the back and before you know it, it's all over. You know a vacuum is an incredibly violent machine? I don't know if you ever stopped to think about it. You ever... Seriously, this is a very violent machine. I don't know why it isn't registered with some kind of warning label or something. Now, if you don't think that's a violent machine, come up and stick your finger in that roller right now. 
Let me do it for you. Don't, don't raise your hand, but have you ever stuck your finger up there while it was running? Kind of like a knife in the toaster. Those are called beater brushes. And as they run along your carpet, just so you know that I, I, I do this like, I feel like I'm at home. There are things in your carpet that are really nasty. Do you know that? Little micro, micro, I'd be scary to death if you know what's crawling around that carpet. So a lot of times when I'm, I'm vacuuming, I'm just making lines so that when Karen comes home, she sees the lines and she's happy. Right? Because to me, it's not about getting the dirt up. It's making the lines. That's cool. Right? As long as I got the lines, it could be filthy. As those beater brushes go, it's picking up stuff that you have no idea that's there. There are things in our lives down deep. We're not even aware they're there. Attitudes and spirits within us in terms of, of how we think that are just wrong. Don't even know it. And God comes along with his great vacuum and that beater brush hits us and it's painful and it hurts and we don't know what's going on. That's the way God leads, by the way. If you're a, per, if you're a Christian and you don't know what God's doing, it's like, what are you doing? You're probably in the will of God. Because he always does things to bring us closer to him. His best lessons are taught there. Nobody can, and nobody can tell you what they are. By the way, if you're going through a storm and people want to give you the lessons God wants you to learn, run from those people. Run from those people. The last, the last thing a person needs when they're in a storm is your lecture. You become like Job's miserable counselors. They need somebody to listen to them. They need somebody to hug them and to love them. Because God is well able to show them what they need in the end. And maybe you won't know for months and years. Maybe you'll never know what he cleaned out of your life, but he does it. Number two. He waits until you wait. Isaiah said, blessed are those who wait on the Lord. Well, I'm waiting on the Lord. Why isn't he showing up? You're not really waiting. That verse does not say, blessed are those who wait on the Lord to deliver me. Blessed are those who wait on the Lord to do this or that or fix this or fix that. Or... It doesn't say that. It simply says, blessed are those who simply wait on him. No matter what he brings, no matter what he does, no matter what he says, I just want him. I don't want his peace. I don't want his love. I don't want his joy. I don't want his deliverance. I don't want any of that stuff. I just want him. And when we get to that point, he knows and he comes. He takes away all the good things to give us the best thing, which is himself. And he gets in the boat, and all of a sudden you're at the shore, and it's all good. And then you probably just need the lesson over again in another storm. Because no matter how many times I make the lines in the carpet, they never stay, do they? I've got to make them again. Third thing, and I'm done. His deliverance is his presence. Period. Now, I'd like to say, oh, you know, I never heard it. No. 
His deliverance is that he is there. Yesterday, Landon and I uh, mulched a couple trees. Uh, four was all he could do. That's why I had to stop. He was tired, a little two-year-old. When I watch my grandchildren, I tell them, you're not here to play. You're here to work. I don't care if you're a year and a half. You're going to work. <laughs> so, you know, I put him in a wheelbarrow with the mulch, and he liked the ride out there. He chased the, the geese out there. He, you know, his job was to take the empty mulch bags and stuff them in the yellow trash thing out there. And it took him a few times, but he finally figured out the process. He, he, he'd pick up the, you know, look around like one of my stuff. We put him there. But we first got in the... Uh, the garage, it was closed because we came in the side door. He didn't like it. It's closed in. It's dark. He's a little scared. As soon as I opened that door, he was good, man. He was good. in and out, in and out. Well, I had to leave. And so we, we walked in the garage together, pulled the door down. Again, we're in the shaded light. It's closed in. And he begins to whimper. And I said, hey, no crying, no whimpering. And he looks at me and he says, Mama, <laughs> Mama. I said, hey, your mother's not here. Don't call for her. <laughs> mean grandpa. I'm toughening him. You men don't know what I'm doing. I said, quit calling for your mama. She's not here. He pauses and looks up and he says this, Papa? I said, Papa's here. And this is what he did. When you are going through the darkness, don't call for mama. Don't call for a human being. Don't call for a circumstance. Call for papa. Papa's there. And it doesn't mean you get out of the darkness, but it means you do like this.